which is more complicated, being a Christian or being a parent? I'd say being a Christian is, is supposed to be easy. Being a parent is supposed to be hard. Bingo. Nice answer. I totally reject that. They're both supposed to be hard. Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today we're taking a break from church, eagles, experience, (laughs) whatever else we've been discussing recently. I have been reading my daily Bible, my chronological daily Bible, broken into 365 daily readings. I'm on day five or day four. So I'm making slow progress, but I'm making some, doing my own work here as we discussed a few episodes ago. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And I found, so in this daily Bible, there's the Bible, which has been put in chronological order. The, the, in other words, all the parts of the Bible have been put in the order of when they took place, when the events, when they think the events took place. And interspersed is commentary. I don't know if you call it commentary or notes or whatever, but it, it kind of gives you, well, it's supposed to give you a better idea of what's going on and more background and whatever. And this commentary is provided. This is the New International Version Daily Bible, and the commentary is provided by F. Elgard Smith. And I tried huh. to find out some stuff about Smith on the internet, and I didn't come up with very much. And what's interesting to me as I read this is we've talked a lot about biblical interpretation and, you know, how often people come to the Bible and things that they're not interpreting. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading the Bible, so I'm doing some level of interpretation. I'm not going deep into any commentaries or anything. But then the fact that Smith has his own little things added in here, you're also dealing with his interpretation of what he thinks happened or what it means or whatever. And I came across Mm -hmm. this interesting section. The topic is Job and setting aside that some people think that Job wasn't really a person and didn't, you know, that it's what poetry or what, how would that be described? Uh, for Job, I don't know what the genre would be. I mean, if you give me half a second, I can, Pull a book off behind me. Let's see what they say here. I have I have in my hands uh, Dillard and Longman's Old Testament uh, introduction to the Old Testament. So if I flip to their thoughts on Job, which is right here, yeah, genre. The Book of Job is unique. The above discussion of the structure and literary background help us towards finding a genre identification. Um, the book could be called a theodicy, which is a justification of God's way in the world. So a theodicy is a philosophical term, and it really means like justifying God, that God is still good in a situation that God where does God doesn't look good or Ooh, powerful that, okay, or this, God doesn't look powerful. This is a great I love how none of this is planned. That's a great tie into where I want to go. So okay, keep, well, read, read a little bit more. Okay, a better perhaps a better designation of the genre of the book is wisdom debate. So I don't think genre uh, theodicy counts as a genre which is probably why they're going towards a better description, a better designation being a wisdom debate. That could be a genre. 
at the heart of the book is the question of the source of wisdom. And then it talks a little about, uh, you know, is the book historical? They would call the book historical fiction. Not pure fiction, but is rooted in historical event. And it has a poetic form. And then it says last year that poet, poetry elevates the book from a specific historical event to a story with universal application. So when they're saying that it's poetic, they're not saying that it's purely made up, you know. Um, and the book of Job is not simply a historical chronicle. On the other hand, it is wisdom that is to be applied to all. So it's not just one person's story. It may not be an actual, Job may not be an actual person, but they're trying to generalize out of something that might be a kind of... Uh, I don't know, a, a, a saying or a, a story that existed in the ancient Near East. And the other thing to take from this too is that a lot of what the, the, the Israelites were doing was working with and against the creation accounts and the wisdom accounts and the various accounts of what it was, who God was and what human beings were in the ancient Near East. And they are a tiny, tiny, tiny nation pushing back on a literary front you know, they're huge. They're people, uh, one author has described them as a people obsessed with history. They're, they're a hugely literary people. Um, you know, and maybe this was originally oral. That's fine. Uh, but it was obviously committed to writing at a certain point. And uh, they're pushing back against accounts from Babylon, from Assyria, uh, so Mesopotamia generally, from Egypt, uh, from the other power sources, and all around them. They, they only had a very, very narrow time in history was Israel actually a, a power, uh, you know, on the political or military front. Otherwise, they were uh, at the whims of other far greater nations. And part of what they're doing is, is substantiating who they are and who this Yahweh, this God of theirs is in relation to these other far more powerful, far more predominant nations. Okay. So I'm not sure why I felt a need to call out that some people, but maybe maybe it's coming more from my background, which was just, uh, I, I remember at a certain point, someone said, well, you know, there's a possibility that like Job wasn't a real person. And I was like, wait a minute, what does that mean? Is that okay? <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I just scared some people. I don't know. For some reason, I felt the need to call that out. Maybe it was just a big distraction. We're only into the, you know, the fourth, the fourth day of this organization of the bible and mm -hmm. smith is speculating that maybe maybe um so he says although there is no scriptural reference to job during this period of time there's compelling evidence to believe that an important historical figure named job should be included here among the ancients his home is in the land of Uz, which is probably in the northern arabian desert in a territory which will come to be known as edom or edumia the part that really drew my attention, and I'm skipping to the second paragraph, is the story of his great faith and of his apparently successful struggle with the reason for his sufferings will be handed down over the generations to come. Several centuries later, at a time when a whole nation will be struggling with the problem of suffering, Job's life will become the basis for a literary masterpiece dealing with suffering and the issue of its causes. Little does this humble man know how his personal adversity will be a source of comfort to multitudes of fellow sufferers for centuries to come. That fact alone might well have something to do with why he is called upon to experience such adversity. The book of Job will be presented later at the time of its writing. So the part that kind of caught my attention here 
That fact alone might well have something to do with why he is called upon to experience such adversity. This, would, to me, would be somewhat of a familiar takeaway, which is God brings suffering so that it can have some purpose. Mm-hmm. And the more you and I have talked, the more I've come to talked, read other stuff, I've come to say, you know what? Does God really bring suffering? You know, and to what degree? When do we start to call it evil? Does mm. God really bring that? I don't mm. think so. Mm-hmm. So my question here is, without, you know, going to, I didn't give you very much notice on this one. Cause, and, well, I don't know why I didn't give you that much notice. I didn't. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was thinking this. I was kind of framing it. I thought, well, I don't want Greg to do, like, weeks and weeks of research on this. But say I'm a, say you and I run into each other at the gym. And and say I'm I'm espousing this this point of view that you know, God brings suffering into our lives so that we can learn things. And, you know, look at Job, you know, Job suffered and look at all the people that benefited from his suffering. That's maybe why Job was meant to suffer so that people later could be encouraged. How would you, like, how would you push against that idea? Well, again, I don't really know you very well. We met at the gym. I'm, I'm giving you this idea. You're not going to give me the courtesy nod. Yeah. Where do you go? So you, it sounds like you're kind of asking a question about responding to the problem of evil, but doing so in a sort of a very um, problem of evil one hundred and one. <laughs> well, yeah, but also uh, like really, really kind of holding the throttle back, not just in terms of being angry, but in terms of of, of really kind of delving into it because you know it's a conversation at the gym, it's a conversation with somebody that I may have just you don't know very well. Um, so my position and my way of responding would be different in this context versus, you know, Hey, you're, um, okay. Maybe that's too contrived then. No, 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 it's okay. Let's do them both. Okay. I I would just say in this context, very straightforwardly, um, if this was a raw issue for me, then realistically, I'm not going to respond. If this is raw, if I've just, you know, lost somebody in my life, if whatever, then I'm I'm probably going to think this this person is nuts. That's me, right? Somebody else might have might already be buying into this notion that oh, of course something's happened. Uh, I've just lost my brother or whomever, and that's for a reason. And I don't know that reason, and and I'm struggling to kind of be okay with not knowing that reason. And I think on that level, all I'd say is we need to be very careful between saying I don't know everything that went into that situation versus. I don't know how God can remain good and that situation can happen. So those are two distinct areas of investigation. The first one, sure. I mean, you know, I could take my own brother's death, right? And I can say, yeah, there's certain things I need to know. Like who was responsible for that accident? I need to know that. That's part of what I need to, to have closure. Who was responsible? How did it happen? Who was there? Was there any chance he could have lived? Those types of things I need to know. But when it comes to questions about, so, you know, why did God let this happen? Well, that's a much larger question that requires a different type of approach and is certainly not going to be answered with the kind of ease and directness of those other questions. But isn't there a third one too sometimes, which is that God actually did it? God caused it. Well, uh, yeah, but 
how <laughs> I guess my response to that very again not being in a raw stage of emotion with this particular situation if somebody said to me well god clearly caused your brother's death i would say well that's interesting uh, what clarity do you have on that because i don't have any what what are you seeing what what's giving you this idea that god clearly did that or that god could have done that at all and so i you know i'd be all ears for somebody to tell me something um and, and I guess that, 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 that kind of ties in with my other point about, you know, God's goodness being at stake. I think that's something that people do need to resolve. Again, it's not something that they can resolve in the sense of me, say, with my brother and saying, you know, when did it happen? Where did it happen? How or why did it happen? Could anything have been done? Right? These are all questions that I've asked and I have some answers to. Some of them I feel are stronger answers than others. Some I just don't have enough information. Maybe nobody does. But I've got enough to say I've got answers. On the question of, you know, is God at fault, which is different from, you know, God caused this, um, which I, you know, I understand that's kind of this, this notion that this person's putting forward about, about Job. And I know you're not going to like this answer. When it comes to Job, I want to do a lot more research on this. because. <laughs> Just, I mean, let's just go there. Let's just go there. You got to, you got to go there just for a second. Let's just go to. The I think beginning I need to Job. start collecting a dollar every time you say. I think I need to do some more research. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you can go in the first two chapters of Job. Right, begins Job. Well, I'm reading from the NRSV. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to skip a lot. I'm going to read the first two. There was a man. There was once a man in the land of whose name was Job, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and seven daughters. And we skip down to verse 6. That's the first two I've read. Now verse 6. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan gives a description and then talks about, talks about Job. But what I want to highlight here is this is unique. This type of encounter between God and Satan, God and the adversary, whomever, this is unique. Unique in the sense that we have very, very isolated instances of interactions like that recorded in the Bible? The only other instance I know of like this is the temptation of Jesus before the beginning of his ministry uh, in Matthew. And I think it recurs in, I'm not sure if it recurs in, in Luke and Mark, um, but it's in the synoptics in any event, only. It recurs nowhere else that I know of in the Old Testament, with the exception of, you know, Genesis 3. And that's not really an issue of Satan and, and God. That's, that's kind of the accuser, if you like, or the adversary, however you want to frame or title this, this entity, and, and human beings, humanity, right? So this is incredibly unique. And my first question is, well, if, if this is what's going on in a lot of situations, why don't we see Satan, if you will, as a, as a character popping up in these stories? And I'm not, by saying a character, I'm not indicating that Satan is, is not, a, not an, an entity. But, but that, in other words, where is this powerful figure and theme in other aspects of ancient Near Eastern Judean literature? As far as I know, not there. So I have some questions right off about Job, and I, I wonder if Job isn't very particular that way. 
You know, in other words, if it's not, um, in some way, like the way the, um, uh, creation narratives in Genesis one and two are in, are in certain senses responses to the creation narratives of other nations and the use of the sea and how the sea plays a different role and how God plays a, is, is different in the creation narratives, uh, in Genesis one and two. I, I wonder about that. So this idea that Satan comes and Satan asks and et cetera. I mean, I think there are some things that are, that are consistent. In other words, there's, it's not a, it's not a kind of a sense where, where Satan is in sort of complete control. And yet also there's the, there's some contrasts, right? Because, because when, uh, Jesus is recorded in the gospels often as speaking of the prince of this world and of taking things back and of being, of the battles in heavenly places. And, you know, even as we're sort of the, the only instance where Jesus takes time specifically to teach the disciples how to pray, the disciples' prayer, if you will, not the Lord's prayer, really. We should call it the disciples' prayer. You know, our Father is in heaven. Your name be hallowed, et cetera, et cetera. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and this is really relevant to the problem of evil that in the sense that God's will is not being done here. Everything that happens isn't what God wants to happen. And if we're taking the New Testament seriously, there is conflict. There is large-scale conflict, which following the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a definitive end to that conflict, right? And it's not as though maybe that was in question before. It's not as though there was a question of, well, who's going to win this this big, you know, uh, 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 cage match of the epic? God or, or the accuser. Well, I don't think there was any question, but, but that's been put in definitive terms with the death and resurrection of Jesus. However, we're still faced with situations where that, you know, the reality that God's kingdom is coming is true, but we don't have that kingdom here yet. The difference between the already, the kingdom already being here and the kingdom not yet being fully realized. And so we're still in this position where there's this battle. So this is a very different presentation, right? It's, it still kind of puts a, a, a hierarchy that we would acknowledge uh, throughout the entire text. It's consistent in, in terms of God and then all others, including this, this one called Satan. But then also we've got this, this real difference where this one called Satan comes and, and kind of is, uh, you know, uh, cunningly suggesting that, that there's no reason at all that God should value this person, this Job. So, I'm not sure how much that gets to the heart of your question, but I, I see a huge need for good research into Job, and I haven't done it yet. So I'm, you know, hesitant to say too much more than to just note some of these things and say, okay, some consistencies, also some anomalies. I think where I was hoping to go was just getting underneath this idea that does God bring suffering or is suffering, in other words, some people would assert that he does. If you don't agree with that, how would you support that? Uh, other people would assert that, well, the world is a broken place and God works in the midst of that suffering to redeem it. But he is not the cause, nor does he send it. It's interesting. Let, let's, let's stick in Job and let's just, just, let's just take a surface level reading here. Maybe not surface, but uh, Job 1 and come back to verses 9 through 12. So Satan's talking about, well, go back up. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered any, uh, uh, let's go six to 12. 
On that day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, that in its own prompts some consideration, because, I, you know, there, there are a couple of references like that in the Old Testament, you know, to Enoch or whomever, to people that were God considered blameless. But this is an unusual thing, right? That God's sort of touting an individual as being great. Because when we look to the New Testament, we see, you know, all the, the, the Pauline writings and, and, and all of Jesus' comments too, that we, we all fall short. You know, we are, there's a big gap in other words. Let's go back then to verse nine. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So my question to you is based on that verse, what happened? Or those verses? Interesting. So in other words, did God cause it to happen or did he allow it to happen? Is that what you're saying? Well, based on what I'm reading there, it says, you know, the Satan says, but stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face, to your face. Verse 11. And then in verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So I think what's happening here. here. Okay. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little more complicated right off the get go. You know, this idea that God caused this. And again, I think this is part of this, this, this idea that God has to be in control of everything. And if God's not in control, then the world is a scary place. Well, hello. I'm sorry to say, God is not in control of everything. You have the entirety of the New Testament. You have the only prayer that Jesus ever purposely instructed the disciples to pray, which includes the notion, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it's not being done here. You have the writings of the Apostle Paul about the battles in the heavenly realms, about the powers and principalities that struggle there. And this is not some sort of, you know, it's not like a story for kids. This is, these are, this is a real struggle. This is, this is something that, that Paul is, is uh, promoting as a, as a huge reality that we do not see with our eyes, but we need to believe through faith, uh, you know, in some senses as an extrapolation from our own experiences and the experiences of those of our community. So through testimony, um, you know, I certainly have days where things just don't go wrong. They, they, they go wrong in a sort of, almost what I would say is what resembles a strategic fashion, like being picked apart. Now, does that, is that an attack of Satan? I don't know. But there is, there's a certain, uh, yeah, strategy to it that makes me wonder really makes me wonder on certain occasions. So, um, you know, in this case, um, it, 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 I know, I don't think God is in full control. And I think that we need to push that aside and, and realize that it's not that God cannot control, but that God has chosen not to, that God has put limits upon God's self. 
right? That God, you know, you do something wrong and God doesn't strike you down. It's not how it works. In other words, that there's, there's patience and that there's a certain timing within which things will be allowed to happen and then, you know, um, there will be an end to the current age and then God will take an active uh, response, make an active response and take an active role. So how much better is that at, at answering your question? Well, yeah, let me think. Okay. I think I was just looking to kind of get, un- yeah, I still wanted to get into this idea that can we be clear about what type of negative things God does or doesn't cause? And I'm assuming you're going to say, no, God does not cause evil or God does not cause bad things to happen to people. And so how would you, how would you back that up? Or am I putting too many words in your mouth? You you might be kind of let, let me let me cut back against that idea. In, in uh, I'm just going to be gra- going to gradually cut back. So the first cutback I'll make is to 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 quote James Houston, founder of Regent College in Vancouver and author of a a couple of books. Um, one of which I have on my shelf, Joyful Exiles. One of the things that James Houston says is that God, we are most used by God in the areas where we have been most deeply wounded. I think that's profoundly true. Now, the, ca- the causal correlation there, it, the causal correlation is not there. In other words, he's not saying God causes us to be harmed so that we will be useful to God. No. No. I, I, think, I think it's more like what Tolkien described at the beginning of the Silmarillion, where the, um, the kind of almighty being, Iluvatar, has the um, the angels and the archangels, the Maya uh, and the Valar, play a symphony. And through this symphony, which he teaches them and, and in which he leads them, all that is is created. And one of the archangels, the, the most powerful of the archangels, Melkor, uh, the Valar, or the Vala, plays um, discordantly. And because of his discordant playing, certain things arise. And at the end of the, these symphonic movements, all creation has come into being. And the other angelic beings are aware that their sibling has thwarted this process and has, has played discordantly. And a couple of them have conversations with the divine being. And, you know, one of them who rules over the water says, you, you, you know, he, he's, he's brought cold. It's divine. It's 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 so cold, and he's he's he's. It, this will cause destruction, of of you know green things, and, and the divine being uh, kind of says, well, well, yes, but also look at what happens with the water, and look at the snow, and look at the crystals that it forms, and look at the ice, and I think um, you know it's not so much to say it's not a kind of um, a Buddhist perspective. That I'm that I'm uh, extolling here, nor, nor that, that that Tolkien is presenting this idea that everything's you, you know there is no wrong or right. It's it's just kind of trying to still your mind and come to peace with all these things. But rather to say that that some of these negative and um, discordant and evil 
actions that in the midst of them or following the, you know, after the fallout of them, there are still possibilities that arise. And in fact, there may be different possibilities. I'm not sure that I would say that they're better possibilities, but they're different possibilities. So he's pointing out, you know, the beauty of snow and its, its uniqueness of every snowflake and the beauty of ice and the wonder of its strength and et cetera. And I guess that's something along the lines of what James Houston is pointing to or seems to me to be pointing to when he's talking about how we are most able to give back because we are familiar with the pain and the hurt. We are able to be with others in a way that those not familiar with these pains and hurts might be too challenged or frightened to do or simply uninformed in order to be, you know, wouldn't be informed enough to be useful. Um, so does God create these things? Does God make them happen? That's something that's often called the greater good argument, that God acts to hurt one person so as to, to help many people. So in the uh, in defense of the greater good, God will act to cause evil. And I, I, I think, um, no, I don't think God causes any evil. In fact, I think evil is a sort of, is, is always a warping of good. It's always parasitic. It, it, it doesn't have its own sort of essence or being, if you want to say it that way. You know, something is purely evil, well, it still exists, and existence is a good. Or it still lives, life is a good. So I don't think that God causes evil, but I think, you know, even with my own case, in my own life, um, I was doing some... Um, Biblical studies. I was, I was, I attended a Bible college. Um, before, you know, I really had the full understanding of, of the, the, the abuse that had happened to me and then the other events that occurred. I mean, they, they occurred in very short succession after me leaving this, this, this Bible college. But it, it's very painfully clear to me the, the, the way that I approach God and life and, and everything is very much different now than then. Granted, I've got, you know, 25 years between, uh, as, as a span between those points between now and, and that time, time at that Bible college. But there was a very different approach that I had. And, and yeah, I, uh, I can say that I value, I greatly value the difference in approach. Um, you know, as a, as a person, I still would have rather had a functional family right? Much more so than whatever insights that I may have gained by going through this process and um, coming to some new understandings and also coming to a new relationship with God. I guess I think it's really, really tricky, you know, to, to work this one out. But if someone wants to say that God caused something, that, that is quite a bit different than saying God God allows something. I do think God allows things because uh, the way, the type of freedom that we need in order to thrive as beings who may make, you know, who may commit themselves fully in a love relationship based on truth to God, which I believe is what Christianity is about. We are committing to a love relationship with God based on truth. There are certain things we need. We need a certain type of world to be in in order for this type of commitment, for this sense of love, for these notions of truth, 
to be genuine, to have traction, to have sufficient traction for the type of relationship that God seeks with us and that we need with God. That's my view. Um, so I don't think, yeah, does God cause these things? I don't think so. Just in the same way that, I mean, I, I, particularly if you think God's chief interest is in you being in relationship with God, does God pull strings so that people, certain people are Christians and certain people aren't? You know, is God behind the scenes pulling strings? Like if God's causing evil, why isn't God causing good? God made me a Christian. God made me make this choice. Well, how, how did that happen? What did that look like? And I think ultimately when we come down, so, so on the one hand, this notion of God causing evil, I think is more of an excuse that one makes when one says, you know, when, when kind of the baseline one has is, there's got to be an explanation, number one. God's got to be in control, number two. Therefore, God caused it. I think that's an excuse. And I think the provability of that claim is often very dubious. But second of all, why are we working with this notion that God is causing good, causing evil, when we don't work with this notion that God causes good? And if God does cause good, well, I mean, what would be the greatest good for a person? I think probably being in right relationship with God. So why, 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 why isn't everyone a Christian? And that, but if God's causing this, then how am I in some sense responsible for my choice or not, or really there is no choice. So if there's no choice, then why bother telling me things like God loves me or God wants to be in relationship with me if God's already made the choice and I don't really have a, you know, anything, uh, I can't say a fig about it. So I, I think these things are deeply interwoven and some of this stuff is, um, you know, we can keep, keep going down the rabbit hole. I think we have to, but I think it gets a little bit worrisome and then we start Worries him in the sense that it begins to uh, inculpate a lot of different perspectives. So it begins to to put our theology in question, begins to put how we live our lives in question, begins to put this greater view of who God is and this whole idea of goodness and evilness into question. When we th when we think, well, if you know, if God's causing evil, why isn't God causing good? And if God's causing both good and evil, then why am I being invited to be in relationship with? with Jesus. There's, there's no invitation. It's not real. God's already chosen. God's already decided. So, and then how is God good? And if that, all that is good, then again, that whole question of responsibility, how on earth am I responsible for this? I'm not making any choices. God's just pulling strings. See, I just got the bad string. <laughs> Say a little bit more about God not causing good. That part sounds strange to me. And then we should probably close out. Well, I mean, why... <laughs> Uh, put it this way, if the description you have or you read as a reader of the biblical text is predominantly that God seeks good, then why are we talking about God causing evil? Wouldn't God naturally want to cause good? If God's orientation is good, then God would naturally seek goodness. Now, maybe God could cause everything and anything. And of course, here, that's a really, we need to be really, 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 really uh, suspicious and, and really aware when somebody starts talking like that, God can do this, God can do that. It's not a question of what God can do. It's a, God, it's a question of what God, given the characterization you have in this text, and given the characterization that communities in relationship with God experience through their communal life and individuals through their individual lives, what that character lends us to understand about who God is, how God acts, what God desires, and how God makes that happen. But here you've stumbled into like the classic scare tactic. 
Which one? You know, how what will God have to do to get your attention? You know how, <laughs> like, you know the. Uh, I don't know if it was in Not a Fan, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. It, you know, it's, it's this whole idea that, yeah, that you know, if if we're in rebellion or we're not, you know, in right relationship with God, you know, how bad will it have to? Well, like how God will, how bad will God have to make things before He finally gets our attention? But that's ridiculously micromanaged. Oh, it totally is. You don't see that. Where where do you see that? I mean, if you think if people are thinking that they're seeing examples of God acting in the same way that God acts with say certain unique individuals in the Old Testament, I mean, please write us. Tell us. Take video. Take pictures. <laughs> right because I'm off base. But you know what? I don't see that. I haven't heard of that. I have no accounts of that. So this idea that God's out to get my attention, like, you know, uh, using Balaam's ass to get Balaam to figure out that he's doing the wrong thing, that does not, it, it just don't work like that, right? Oh, gee, I was going to, I don't know, go to the brothel one day, and uh, it's uh, about 10 miles from my house, and lo and behold, my car went a mile and stopped. And then I turned my car on, and the only gear it would go in was reverse, so I put my foot on the gas and it started steering itself back into my driveway. And then I tried to turn it off and it went into forward. And it then steered itself to my pastor's house. And I tried to lock the doors and I found the door fell off. And the seatbelt pushed me out of the car. And there was my pastor and he said, strange to see you here. Where were you going? And I confessed and it was all better. I mean, this is like some hokey, ridiculous way of, I mean, I'm, I'm being... Uh, I'll say I'm being ridiculous beyond the ridiculous, but nevertheless, like this idea of God having to get my attention, what does God have to do to get my attention? God's already done everything that God needs to do to get my attention. This text is hugely important. And I, I will, you know, continue as a Christian to argue for the, um, the reliability of this text to do what it's aiming, what it's aiming to do, which is to provide us information about who God is, who we are, and what the right relationship between the two should be, and how that comes about. And then in terms of what God has to do to get my attention, I mean, a lot of this has to do with churches and, in other words, groups of Christians, whether you're in a church, whether you gather in any number of different ways, living out what it means to have Christ-like character and then allowing yourself to be yourself in character like Christ, in personality like you with all the creativity and responsibility that that entails. So, you know, these ideas, these, these scare tactics, I think, uh, um, once again, I, 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 my guess is that a community where this type of scare tactic response is the norm is a community that has not sufficiently devoted itself to understanding A, the nature of the Bible, B, the nature of relating with God in a viable, powerful, living way, and C, what it means to love your neighbor. Because that seems thoroughly unloving to me. What does God have to do to get your attention? I mean, hold on. It's, it's just like our conversation, many podcasts about, about biblical literacy. If you're not spending time reading your Bible, 
the first thing to do isn't to smack yourself around and say bad. First thing is to ask yourself why. Why not? Well, it's, I don't know, it's, it's boring. It doesn't make sense. It's not as engaging. I mean, if you're finding the biblical story to be boring, if you're finding the biblical story not to be engaging, my sense is you've been given this kind of uh, Jesus came to die for our sins story. And that, pardon me, is crap. Read the beginning of the Gospels. Read Jesus beginning to speak. Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. That is much bigger than you and me. It includes me. It includes you. But the story is much larger. I think our churches have watered down the story. We use scare tactics, as you've mentioned. Um, we have these misunderstandings that it's about what God can do versus who God is and in that contextualized understanding where God is going and what it looks like to try to you know, connect with God. And when we miss God, what type of situation that looks like, how that may be remedied or not. You know, so there's, it's a lot more complicated. We want to make it simple. We want to make it easy. And, you know, I think something that, that uh, Dan Daly pointed to um, in one of our earlier podcasts recently is this idea that, you know, uh, pastors have way too much authority. And it's, it's this, this, this pastor role of authority and taking control. And then there's this follower role where you divest yourself of, of authority, but also responsibility. You kind of sit back, you get lazy, you don't spend time thinking or researching, you know, and I, I know research can be daunting. It's still daunting for me to get in there and do stuff, even on subjects that I've researched before, but we've got to be doing this. And I think that, yeah, that whole scare tactic thing, uh, John, I would just say is completely bogus. It represents a, a misunderstanding on a number of levels. No, and I, I think would throw it out of court. <laughs> I think you've pointed that out. Now, one, well, no, I, I, something I'd like to come back just briefly, and then we do, do need to close out is it is complicated. And in, in other words, as I'm looking at this one-year Bible, I mean, this thing is—I don't know—it doesn't have page. Where are the page numbers? Yeah, it's like sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred pages long. Mm. I mean, that's a lot of reading. Yeah, that's a lot well, of stuff to put together. Can and I you, can I put in one note there? Yeah. One of the things that I look for, so I have a Bible that I always use. And if it was down to me, my Bible would have two things, three things in it, a page number, a book. And uh, so like right now I'm looking at the book of Judges. And when I flip the page at the top, it says Judges 130. On the next page, Judges 329, verses and chapters, nothing else. No, con no, 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 no subtitles. Don't, don't give me a little blurb about what's going on here and there. In other words, I want to read this. Don't give me a summary. I'm not a dummy. And it's my job to read it. So it may be that you're one year Bible. I mean, you've got a lot of this F. Lagarde Smith. Now, maybe he's great, but maybe he's not. No, I'm not but, so sure. Like this thing about Job kind of made me wonder. And I read something else. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I just skip those. I purposely went and looked for this Bible. It is inexpensive. It's hardcover. And it has no, absolutely nothing other than, and then there are textual comments at the bottom. I want that too. You know, like give me what that word means in Greek or if it's something I should be aware of because it's a, you know, oh, this verse could be taken one of. This is interesting. So you bought a, you bought a very specific Bible. Totally stripped down. Strip it, strip On it purpose. down. 
on purpose. Buy a stripped-down Bible. Do not buy a Bible that has tons and tons of stuff. Like, if you want tons and tons of stuff, I've got that, right? No like, air conditioning, power windows, or power door locks. Zero, zero. <laughs> so, but get commentaries. Like, don't try to combine your commentary in a Bible, right? There are guys over here, I've got, like, last names, like, like the RT France and Joel Green and Craig Keener. I mean, these are just three of them for, these are the people whose commentaries I have for the Gospels. And these are like, I don't know, they're about six to a thousand pages, 600 to a thousand pages. And I know for a lot of people, it's like, hey, Greg, I'm not going to read that. Okay, but bear in mind, think about the difference between trying to cram in the value of a commentary into a, a study Bible or this or that. Don't get your study Bibles. Read the freaking, read it. And if it doesn't make sense, read it again. And when it doesn't make sense, read it again. And when it doesn't make sense, go to bed and get up tomorrow and read it again and read it again. And then begin putting stuff together, right? So that you can see the patterns and you can see what's going on. That is and, fascinating. That well, I would have never thought about. No, this, I think you're onto something here because yes, it's like you read, I don't know. Well, like you start on January 5th and you've got the whole page this is the next day. It's all about Abraham, which we need to get back to, by the way. <laughs> From, you give me more research. <laughs> I, yeah. I know you don't have enough to do over there. Um, no, but so it's a whole page that's a, that's a summary explanation. Then there's a little scripture, and then there's another summary. Then there's a little more. And so it's this constant back and forth. That's very interesting. Yes, yeah, this constant back and forth between the Bible and then what this guy thinks well, or what I, he it, believes it's about, not what he thinks, but you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying, and I'll just be, I'm not trying to shoot any shots here, but when I looked up, I've Googled F. Lagarde Smith, he hasn't written any commentaries. So maybe if I had a study Bible by somebody like Eugene Peterson, now that, that's a totally different situation. Uh, a massive Hebrew scholar, you know, a, a fantastic Greek scholar, and so when you're reading Eugene Peterson's translation, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent translation. He is a top-notch guy, but he's still only one guy, right? You can't be a specialist in every book of the Bible. I've got, I don't know, most of the New Testament represented on my bookshelf. There are very, very few repeats. I think there's only one. So um, again, you got to think about who is contributing to this study Bible. Are they writing? Have they written any commentaries? Uh, specifically on the books where they, they're making comments, <laughs> you know, or not making comments, I guess. But No, I still uh, want to come back to this idea, though. It's a way longer topic. But, yeah, I'm still puzzled by this idea that, and maybe this is just more of my old baggage, but I'm still puzzled by this idea that it's so complicated. You know, knowing God is supposed to be so simple. You just ask Jesus into his, into your heart and realize you're a sinner, and then you know God. And it's you know, like it's just, and yet, like I said, there's this huge book, huge the Bible, with all of these different complexities and all these different things that have happened and all the interplay between all those things, and then their meaning. Okay, uh, I, I hear that. And, and uh, if I can, I'd shoot back to you with a question. Which is more complicated, being a Christian or being a parent? 
<laughs> I don't think I'm stumped. <laughs> okay, well, I think they're both equally well. Okay, well, okay. Here's what I'd say. I'd say being a Christian is is supposed to be easy. Being a parent is supposed to be hard. Bingo! Nice answer. I totally reject that. <laughs> <laughs> they're both supposed to be hard, right? There's no, some that, easy okay, things that's, about it. That's where I want to go. Then at some point is where. Uh, maybe and maybe I, I don't feel like I'm. I'd be shocked if I'm the only one that has this idea. But I feel like there's this idea in Christianity that it's easy. Yeah. Not that it's well. I'm, let me clarify. Not that it's easy to live, but it's easy to understand. Yeah. Sure. It's really hard to live. That's why we. You know. That, that's a whole other topic for another day. But the whole understanding. No, mm-hmm. I mean you can really boil it down pretty simply. And you yeah. need to so people can understand it and so that they'll, you know, want to sign up. Well, yeah, but you can boil down parenthood pretty simply, too. And becoming a parent is really easy. I mean, <laughs> you know, seriously. And then once you're a parent, it's like, oh, my gosh, how am I doing this? And, of course, it's that's the whole thing. Like, you know, hopefully you're being mentored by other parents who are further ahead. Maybe your own parents who come and help you out or, you know, brothers and sisters, relations, et cetera, you know, or your community. But there, there there's there's some, some good tie-ins here. So, yeah, I'd love to investigate that further. All right. Who knew that the Daily Bible could deliver so much? So many <laughs> jumping off points. <laughs> so you call that I'd, done? Yeah, I, okay. I'm sorry if I went on too long, John. I don't know something about that really got me. <laughs> Which part? Well, I'm still stumped about this. I just, yeah, like I said, I don't know if I just need a dope slap or if I need, you know, you just need to get me in a corner and and uh, do therapy with me or something, or if this is just like, where do I get this idea that it's supposed to be easy? Because I, seriously, I'm just like. Every time I talk to you, it's like, oh, well, what you have to understand is that, you know, in the Near Eastern, this time, this is going on, and these people believe this, and in that culture, this is what was really going on, and this. It's like, oh my gosh, I could be like reading Genesis for the rest of my life and never get it. Maybe what's easy is, on the one hand, understanding what's involved to be a Christian, and then beginning the process of developing certain skills, developing a degree of skepticism, developing a degree of suspicion, and certainly developing curiosity without all the shackles of this sort of immediate sense of being the right person, being who God wants you to be. And obligation. Yeah. And I think once you've got those, those kind of, once your nose can smell that way, once you can kind of sniff skepticism. You can sniff skeptically, you can sniff suspiciously, and you can sniff with curiosity. I think then it's a question of, okay, well, what tools do I need, right? You know, I've got a good enough sense of creativity to build this shed. And I'm, I'm, you know, getting some, some background with some of this, but what do I need for tools? Where do I get them from? Who do I borrow them from? Oh, okay. Well, maybe the Bible's a little more complicated than I thought. How can I find some commentaries? Who's got some? Does what is my pastor using, by the way? I mean, that's a fantastic question. People should should go and look at your your pastor's bookshelf. You know, what type of stuff is he using? Or she? Ask, ask her or him. And 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 have that conversation. You know, what do you like? Why do you use these things, these books? And 
this is going to sound really judgmental. I know that. But it's one thing for you, right, for you, John, to say, here, Greg, you know, I have this set by N.T. Wright. And it's the entire New Testament. And it's called the New Testament for everyone. And I paid 125 bucks. And, um, you know, when I kind of sit down my desk, books on my, on my desk and I put one hand on the left on Matthew and the left side of Matthew and one hand on the right side of Revelation and push them all together, it's about a foot and a half wide. Okay, awesome, John. That's, that's, that's fantastic. You've got a lot of information there. But for a pastor, I would hope that they've got some, some, you know, heavy hitters on their bookshelf. Because I, you know, it's like my mechanic. I'm happy to go to my friend to tinker with my car, but if I've got a real problem, I'm going to go to the mechanic who happens to know my type of car, you know, especially if I've got a foreign or an import, whatever. Same thing with my pastor. So, you know, if, if I see my pastor is working from NT right with it for everyone, I personally, I, I'd, I'd be, You're a little I'd be asking some questions. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that all you got? <laughs> Is, how, how, how do you find that works out? What do you do when you have got a question and NT write for everyone doesn't go far enough? You know, and he may say, oh, well, then I go to my friend Jerry who has like the entire, I don't know, uh, New International Greek Testament commentary series. Oh, okay. That's a pretty big series. I see. No sense you buying that and he buying that. And yeah, he just lives down the road. So, but I'd want to have some good answers to that. And I'd want to have you know, I, I guess this is the type of responsibility. It's like when you invest in something, right? As an investor, you want to know where your money's going. You want to know how it's being used. This is the same thing. When you invest in a church, how I'm, I'm investing a certain degree of trust in the, um, I guess, the expertise of the pastor to to not only, you know, run certain things and et cetera, like I'm really pleased when I walk into church every single time, uh, be, primarily, first of all, you know, the, the possibility for me being pleased is the reality that I think this is a very functional church. They really do a lot of things like loving each other, being honest and being open, being authentic. They do them well. But in that context, I am super duper pleased every time the pastor gets up to offer uh, a sermon. Number one, because I didn't have to do it. I did not have to take my time during the week to prepare this sermon. I did not have to take my time to think about what, you know, what verses or what sections. And I also like the fact that, yeah, he has thought about that. He's thought, well, which part of the text am I going to talk about? And as much of the text as I happen to be in, in any given week, he, it's, it's, it's almost always a surprise to me where he's going to go. I didn't predict that he'd do this or do that. Oh, great. So I get to see another part of the text that this week or last week or whatever, I didn't really spend any time in. Oh, cool. So what's this about? And I can kind of, you know, refamiliarize myself with something or maybe learn something new. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I'm investing. I'm an investor there. And I want to know how my investment is being used. And I'm investing myself, which means I'm, I'm lending my trust. How are you repaying my trust? You know, and uh, you know, I, I I have contributions to make too, right? And and um, that that's important that I think about it from the perspective of me giving, but of me being given too. I think that we need to be a little more uh, savvy 
when we think about that and think about, you know, participating in a church is also knocking on your pastor's door and having a conversation about his or her perspective and what it's based on. And, you know, even going in and saying, I don't feel the best about some of the things that were you said that last sermon. And I want to know how I can check out these ideas better, how I can be more thorough and how I can dig deeper here. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. Notes and links for this episode are at untanglingchristianity.com. We welcome your thoughts and comments both at the website and our private Facebook group. If you'd like to join the private Facebook group, let us know your email address in the sidebar of the website to receive notes and links for each episode, and we'll send you an invite to our private group. Or you can send your thoughts or requests to join the group by email. Send those emails to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.